Hello. How's everybody doing? Excellent. Uh, I, my name is Bruce Friedrich. I am the founder of the Good Food Institute. Uh, we work on alternative proteins, which is what I'm going to be talking about now. Um, before I get started and just apropos of nothing, um, did folks hear that Bill Gates bought the Seattle Times this morning? He buys it every morning. Some people are a little slower on the uptake than others. Um, all right. Uh, so the title of this talk, The EA Case for Remaking Meat, The Next Global Agricultural Revolution. I want to start with audience participation. I guess the Bill Gates joke was kind of audience participation, but uh, real audience participation. Who here likes pasta? Wow, we have unanimity, it looks like, for pasta. Um, who here would go to your refrigerator, throw away eight plates of pasta, and eat one plate of pasta? Every once in a while, there's somebody in a beef it's what's for dinner cap in the back with their hand up. But uh, for the most part, no. Like We're all um, opposed to food waste. We see food waste as a moral issue. We wouldn't throw away eight plates of food in order to eat one plate of food. It would be wasteful. Um, if you're like most audiences, you're concerned about food waste, and we should be concerned about food waste. Something like 40% of all food that is produced globally is literally thrown away. Uh, but the thing is, the most efficient animal at turning crops into meat is the chicken. And according to the World Resources Institute, it takes nine calories fed to a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of that animal's flesh. Uh, for pork, it's something like 15 calories in to get one calorie back out. For feedlot beef, it's 40 calories in to get one calorie back out. So this is what that looks like in bar graph form. Um, that's food produced. That's food thrown away. And that is essentially food thrown away in the most efficient system that turns crops into meat. It's an extraordinarily antiquated technology, the idea of growing crops to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals. And it gets at the heart of why GFI exists. When we were founded about six years ago, the founding question was, how do we feed close to 10 billion people by 2050 without burning the planet to a crisp, essentially? So we need to feed the world securely, sustainably, and safely. And this is an extraordinarily inefficient way to try to do that. And it's not just that you need those nine calories to get one calorie back out from a chicken or 40 calories to get one calorie back out from a cow. And that's nine times the amount of land, nine times the amount of water, nine times the, the pesticides and herbicides. Now you're growing all of those crops and you're shipping them to a feed mill and you're operating the feed mill. Then you're shipping the feed to the industrial animal farm and you're operating the industrial animal farm then you're shipping the animals to the slaughterhouse and you're operating the slaughterhouse. It's multiple extra stages of gas guzzling pollution spewing vehicles. It's also multiple extra factories, which are incredibly energy intensive uh, and also extraordinarily polluting. And when you crunch all of those numbers, what you find is that industrial animal agriculture is responsible for about a one-fifth of all direct emissions, so one-fifth of climate change, which is 
an existential risk, at least to life as we're living it today. Um, and it's actually quite a bit worse than the one-fifth because it's also the vast land use that's required. So globally, we use about 4 billion hectares of land for food. 3 billion of those hectares are either growing all of those crops to feed them to chickens and pigs and other far farm animals, um, or they're grazing ruminants. 3 billion hectares is the size of India plus China times two plus Indonesia. Last year, uh, NYU environmental scientists published a paper in Nature Sustainability. They said the opportunity cost of the land use, if you simply shifted uh, to plant-based consumption, shifted all of the land to plant-based consumption, eliminated industrial animal agriculture, and allowed the land savings to rewild, you would be able to sequester 26 gigatons of CO2 every single year, just from rewilding, just from ecosystem re re reconstruction. That's about half of the total gigatonnage created by human beings from all causes put together. So as a part of the climate solution, it's not just that a fifth of it is attributable to animal agriculture, it's also the vast amount of land that could be used as part of a comprehensive climate mitigation strategy that is currently not used because it's grazing ruminants or it's growing crops to feed them to animals in that inc incredibly inefficient system. So that's one of the problems of the 12,000-year-old technology. We've been raising crops to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals. This antiquated technology, we've been doing that for 12,000 years, and it's antiquated. Um, two other quick things to talk about. I'm going to talk about them in a little bit less depth, but they're important to note. Um, antibiotic resistance or antimicrobial resistance. About 70% of all of the antibiotics that are produced by the pharmaceutical industry globally about 70% of those antibiotics are fed to farm animals. You want to scare? Uh, Google the end of working antibiotics. You want an even bigger scare? Add the word China to your Google search for the end of working antibiotics. The UK government released a report about antibiotic resistance about five years ago. They said the threat to the human race from antibiotic resistance is greater, is a more certain threat than the threat from climate change. We're literally talking about, according to the former president of the World Health Organization, Dr. Margaret Chan, we're talking about the end of modern medicine via the end of working antibiotics. And then uh, the penultimate thing to talk about, pandemic risk. So not clear necessarily where COVID-19 came from. It might have come from a, a wet market. It might have come from a lab. We don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that the scientific consensus is that these are the seven most likely causes of the next pandemic, the next COVID-19. This is a report from July 2020 called Preventing the Next Pandemic by the UN Environment Program. They listed the seven most likely causes of the next version of COVID-19. Uh, the first one was increased demand for animal protein. According to the UN, we're gonna have to produce 70 to 100% more meat by 2050, both because per capita meat consumption is going up and because population, population is rising. So 70 to 100% more meat by 2050, the more animals you have, the more likely you will be that you will have a zoonotic disease that will cause the next pandemic. Uh, the second most likely cause is industrial animal farming. So you've got first, more animals means more risk of an animal disease, jumping the species barrier. But then when you do industrial animal farming, you end up with all these genetic clone animals 
And because they are all so similar to one another, they don't have the same immune system disease resistance. Um, and because you're cramming 50,000 chickens in a shed or hundreds of thousands of egg-laying hens in a shed increases uh, the likelihood of disease transmissibility as well. The seventh one is climate change, which we just talked about. And it's worth noting uh, that COVID-19, in fact, all three of these, climate change, antibiotic resistance, and COVID-19, most adversely affect the people globally who, can le who least contributed to the problem and the people globally who can least adapt. So it's almost tautological that the people who least contributed to climate change are the people who are going to be most adversely impacted by it. Um, that's also true of antibiotic resistance. That's also true of pandemic risk. So antibiotic resistance and pandemic risk would be horrible in developed economies, would be horrible for all of us. Life and death for people in developing economies where they don't have medical care. Uh, COVID-19 was not particularly transmissible, was not particularly deadly relative to what it could have been. Still sent 150 million people into extreme poverty, none of them in developed economies. It's not US poverty, it's not European poverty, it is extreme poverty. People who are not taking in enough calories to sustain basic life functioning for the most part. Uh, similarly, antibiotic resistance, the people who are most adversely impacted, you don't have a doctor, you scrape your knee, um, your best case scenario is that your leg is amputated. Your worst case scenario is that the infection kills you because the antibiotics don't work. Um, and then finally, animal protection. Uh, other animals, this is uh, not news to anybody in this room, but it's news to a lot of people. Um, other animals feel pain in the same way and to the same degree that we do. And the way that they are treated on these modern industrial farms, the way that they are treated in these slaughterhouses as, is as though they were inanimate objects. Uh, every moment of their lives is categorized by unmitigated misery. Just in the US, it's 10 billion land animals per year. So significantly more than the global human population. Globally, it's 70 billion land animals and hundreds of millions of aquatic, it's hundreds of billions, sorry, 70 billion uh, land animals globally, hundreds of billions of sea animals globally, um, and they are all suffering throughout their entire lives. They literally suffer to death. Um, slaughter is pretty brutal and un unpleasant, but it is you know, the best moment of these animals' lives, um, and their suffering matters. You know, Peter Singer says, when you are discussing a being's right to be free from pain and suffering, the only morally relevant variable is that being's capacity to feel pain, that being's capacity to suffer, um, physiologically, what we know to be true is that other animals are, are equal in that regard. Um, and um, obviously, the way that 70 billion land animals and hundreds of billions um, of sea animals are treated um, is a moral atrocity. So what's the solution? Um, this guy was part of a, a coalition of about 30 scientists who worked for three years, focused just on the global health and environmental consequences of meat production. They released a report called the Eat Lancet Report, um, and their conclusion was humanity poses a threat to the stability of the planet, which requires nothing less than a new global agricultural revolution. Our friends at Chatham House, which is the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the foremost think tank in Europe, um, they think they have the solution. So they released a report about five years ago talking about the climate impact of meat production um, and their call to action was that governments around the world should tell everybody to eat less meat. Since they released that report five years ago, what do you all think has happened to meat consumption globally? 
Yeah, it's going up and up and up. Um, it's not working, and we don't think the solution is to tell people about the problem. Um, if you are in this room, you're probably aware, maybe not the precise statistics that I just described, but at least um, aware of the issues that I just laid out. Um, it's really hard to read or watch the news and not be at least somewhat aware um, of much or most of what I just described. It's constantly in the news. So huge reduction in meat eating, essential to avoid climate breakdown. 16,000 scientists signed dire warning to humanity over the health of the planet. Uh, they said we need to eat 90% less meat than we're eating. The profound planetary consequences of eating less meat about the Eat Lancet report. Um, people know, and even in areas of the world where people know, per capita meat consumption is going up. So this is the trajectory from 1960 to 2010, uh, the global trajectory. North America has flattened out a little bit here through 2010, but since then it's been going steadily up. And even in the United States, 2020 was the highest per capita meat consumption in recorded history. In the United States, where people are aware of these problems, where there are literally you know, dozens of large organizations trying to convince people to eat less meat, 2020 was the highest per capita meat consumption in recorded history, followed by 2019. Um, I think 2021 went down a little bit, maybe. Um, might have also gone up a little bit, I'm not sure. But uh, nevertheless, despite all of the education, per capita meat consumption is as high as it's been. Um, it's not as high as it's been in the UK ever, but it is the highest it's been in the last 10 years. It's been steadily going up for 10 years. Um, and if you read the news every January, there are all these stories about all the people who are cutting meat out of their diets. Um, I don't know what's happening with all the people who are cutting meat out of their diets, but the other people are eating more of it uh, to make up for the people who are cutting meat out of their diets. Uh, the moral of the story is that education is not the entire, is not the silver bullet. Education is unlikely to meet the moment of the massive increase in meat consumption that we're seeing here. Um, and even if we could educate people in the United States, even if we could educate people in the rest of the developed economies, where the skyrocketing meat production and consumption is happening, as you'll see here, um, is in China and in developing economies. Our hypothesis at GFI is that food is instinctual. So Nobel laureate in economics, Daniel Kahneman, the book Thinking Fast and Slow, he talks about systems one thinking and systems two thinking. Systems one thinking is click were. Systems one thinking is the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Systems one thinking is physiology. So if you've ever seen presentations about obesity rates in developed economies, you know that um, almost year after year and certainly decade after decade, they have to keep coming up with new colors for the map of obesity and overweight prevalence. And it's not that people don't know how to not be overweight or obese. It's that our food system um, encourages overweight and obesity, and our bodies, our, our uh, psychology is simply not up to the challenge. Um, in the same way, we may know the environmental consequences of meat eating. We may know about the cruelty to animals. We may know about the global health issues. And yet the vast majority of people just don't make food choices on the basis of something other than price and taste, essentially. Um, who here likes Ben and Jerry's? Yeah, pretty much everybody likes Ben and Jerry's. Nobody thinks this is a health food. We like it because it's not too expensive and it's delicious. So how do we apply the Ben and Jerry's is awesome calculus to the problem of industrial meat production and all of the external costs? 
Um, option one, we think, is we figure out how to make, how to biomimic the entire meat experience from plants. So up until the companies Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, a little less than a decade ago, um, plant-based meat, veggie burgers, was basically the soy oil industry's waste product and protein, um, and the pasta and bread industry's waste product and wheat protein. And you take the soy oil waste and the wheat carbohydrate waste, and you cram it together, and you force vegetarians to eat it. That's essentially what veggie burgers, veggie nuggets, et cetera, were um, up until the companies Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. And they came along and they said, hey, wait a minute. Meat is made up of lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. That is all meat is, lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. Plants have lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. So let's hire meat scientists and tissue engineers and plant biologists and mechanical engineers and let's figure out how we can make meat out of plants. Let's biomimic the entire meat experience and let's do it with plants. So that's option one. Um, and because it requires so many fewer resources, we should be able, as we scale up, to get to a point at which you have products that taste identical or better and that cost the same or less as it scales up. That's the theory. Um, I will tell you from having had these sorts of conversations with a lot of people over the last six years, that there are still a lot of people who want to eat actual animal meat. They simply don't want to eat a plant-based version, no matter how inexpensive it is, um, and no matter how good it is. For those people, we can cultivate meat directly from animal cells. We can literally take a biopsy the size of a sesame seed from a chicken or a pig or a salmon or a cow. We can grow those uh, cells in a warm nutrient bath, um, and we can create actual animal meat, but without any antibiotics required, without any pandemic risk, without the same contribution to climate change, without the same land use, and so on, um, and this is what it will look like at scale. Your friendly neighborhood meat brewery, essentially. Um, when we do those two things, what we find is, even now, the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger are the two examples of companies trying to do this. This is the Beyond and Impossible Theory of Change. Um, with both companies, their goal is to be um, as delicious or more delicious from the vantage of meat eaters and to cost less. That is what they're trying to do. Um, and they both cost, cause about 90% less direct emissions while using about a 20th of the land. Um, and those numbers on the right will get better as they scale up. So the land use probably won't change much, but the, uh, the direct emissions as they scale up um, will actually come down on a per product basis. And then for cultivated meat, you're talking about 92% to 92% less direct warming, um, a 20th of the land, even, even relative to chicken, you're talking about 17% less, uh, less warming um, and about a fourth um, of the land requirement. And again, that land can be freed up to, um, can be freed up for carbon sequestration for rewilding. So this is the one food and ag solution that Bill Gates is excited about. So uh, when Bill was launching this book last February, so a year and a couple of months ago, um, he was talking about how food and agriculture is about a third um, of all climate impact and is basically ignored by the climate community. And the reason for that, he thought, was that every solution other than alternative proteins to food and, and agriculture doesn't scale. 
Every other solution requires vast government programs or it causes the price to go up. It doesn't analogize to renewable energy and electric vehicles. This is the one solution that does that. Um, so it's also the one solution that Bill is excited about and he points out cultivated meat, which is also true of plant-based meat, is basically the electrify everything of food. So the environmental movement, their sort of mantra is electrify everything. Uh, this is how you do that for food and agriculture. You literally eliminate uh, the entric fermentation, which is responsible for the plurality of methane. Uh, you eliminate a lot of the nitrous oxide, all of the nitrous oxide from manure decomposition. Um, and because you condense the, the number of steps and the amount of feed inputted, you also slash the direct carbon um, emissions. You also eliminate the contribution to antibiotic resistance, um, and you eliminate those first two of seven, just gone um, from the most likely causes of the next pandemic. And just to underline again, the areas of the world that most profit from this transition are the global south. The areas of the world that most profit from this transition are the people um, who are currently living in extreme poverty. Um, so how do we feed 10 billion people by 2050, securely, sustainably, and safely? Um, one part of the solution, not a silver bullet, but one part of the solution is shifting how we produce meat from the way we've been doing it for 12,000 years to producing the exact same experience for consumers using plants or cultivating uh, the animal products directly from cells. Then the question is, do we need a nonprofit organization to plug into this uh, at GFI? Obviously, our answer to that question is yes, we do need a nonprofit um, or we wouldn't exist. Um, and I want to just tell you briefly about what GFI is up to to try to lift the entire sector. So um, everything that GFI does fits into one of six um, organizational pillars. Uh, we use the objective and key result system popularized by Google. Um, our first pillar has to do with science. Our second pillar has to do with governments. And our third pillar um, has to do with the uh, current food and meat industries predominantly, as well as startups and alternative proteins. Um, so science and technology, until GFI came along, uh, this entire sector was people who had an idea and then they had a company. So Impossible, Beyond, Upside, Mosa, Future Meat Technologies, all at Blue Nalu, all of these companies, somebody had an idea and then they had a company. And all of their science was protected either by intellectual property or their science was protected uh, by trade secrets. And we came along and nobody, until GFI started, had done a technological readiness assessment of alternative proteins. So nobody had said, what do we know? What are the things we know we don't know and we need to explore? Where are the areas where we don't even know what we don't know and we need to go out and have conversations with plant biologists and mechanical engineers and tissue engineers and figure out uh, what we don't know we don't know so that we can start to know it, um, essentially. So the first thing we did at GFI, the first half dozen people that we hired were in June of 2016, so not quite six years ago. And uh, two of them were scientists, and their first charge was figure out the technological readiness assessment of plant-based and cultivated meat, uh, figure out what the critical technologies are, let's start mapping this out. Um, and we've been doing that since. So we do a lot of original research, analyzing knowledge gaps um, and white space opportunities. We are building scientific communities. We have a monthly uh, Science of Alt Protein webinar that people can sign up for, and we hope you will. Um, we do technological workshops, we do dive, deep dives, we do a lot of sort of um, orchestrated slash curated uh, conversations across scientists to explore specific questions. Um, and we also have a competitive grant program. We allocate funding toward high impact research. 
Um, here are some of our resources for scientists, monthly webinars, workshops, uh, the other the collaborative research directory. You can read this slide as well as I can read this slide. Um, would suggest that you check out the Massive Open online course if you're interested. Um, our solutions database um, is really something that uh, the entire community contributes to, um, and governments are going to the GFI solutions database to figure out what they should be funding, which is pretty exciting. Um, second uh, stool, uh, or sorry, second leg of the stool is industry engagement. Um, so as the slide says, we partner with companies and investors. So we work all the way from people who are entrepreneurs and they don't know what they should be doing to help them understand what the white spaces are, um, all the way up to having excellent relationships with the largest meat and food companies in the world. Um, so we have excellent relationships, JBS, Tyson, Smithfield, Cargill, um, BRF are the top five meat companies in the world. Um, Nestle and ADM are two of the biggest food companies in the world. Um, and our goal for them, our pitch to them, is you are protein companies, you are not animal, you know, you're not this 12,000 year old technology. Um, you are providing protein to people profitably. That is your business model. Um, you can provide protein to people more profitably if you move into plant-based and cultivated meat. Um, all of the top five and the big two are doing plant-based. Um, four of the top five are doing cultivated meat to a meaningful degree. Um, we build relationships with all of them. Um, we produce lots and lots of resources. That's actually this slide. Uh, so we do monthly webinars. I mentioned the science of alt protein. We also have the business of alt protein. Um, at gfi.org, you can find our investor directory, our GFIdeas community, gfi.org slash community for both scientists and entrepreneurs. We have a company database. We have our state of the industry reports, retail reports, consumer insights, manufacturing guide. Um, and I apologize for reading your slide again. And then, uh, the third leg of the stool uh, is policy, and this is GFI's global battle cry. Our global battle cry is that governments should be funding alternative protein R&D, and governments should be incentivizing private sector activity um, in plant-based and cultivated meat. And in the last few years, we have had a lot of success um, all over the world with this um, belief. For the same reason that governments are funding agriculture, for the same reason governments are funding global health, for the same reason governments are funding renewable energy, um, governments should be putting billions of dollars into figuring out how to make meat from plants um, and how to cultivate meat from cells. And our big victory, our, our first like really big sort of NGO breakthrough uh, was with Bill Gates. When Bill Gates launched his book last February, he also launched an NGO, Breakthrough Energy, a spin-off of Breakthrough Energy Ventures. Um, and GFI literally wrote their policy plan around food and agriculture. Um, and the Thursday before they launched it, they took us off NDA, which is pretty great. Uh, we thought we were never going to be able to tell anybody about it. And then the Thursday before they launched it, they said, no, you can take, take credit for it. And Bill Gates actually shouted us out on LinkedIn, which was pretty sweet. Uh, but it's um, fund open access science, incentivizing private sector R&D, and incentivizing plant-based and cultivated meat, infrastructure and manufacturing build out. Uh, GFI, we're now about 75 full-time people in the U.S., um, about 75 people total across our affiliate organizations, which are in Brazil, Europe, Israel, India, and Asia Pacific. Um, we're in these six areas of the world. We are not a vegan advocacy organization. We're not a diet advocacy organization. Um, we're not trying to tell anybody what to eat. We're not even a meat reduction organization. We're a food technology organization. Um, so analogizing to renewable energy and electric vehicles, we're not the people trying to tell you to put solar on your house or buy a Tesla. 
were the people behind the scenes making solar and Teslas simply the way that our lives are powered and we get around the city. Um, so we're not in Singapore or Israel because we care what people eat in Singapore or Israel. We're in Singapore and Israel because those governments have world-class scientific institutions and put a lot of money into science. And our global battle cry is that governments should be funding this transition. So that's how we create the next agricultural revolution. We don't do it person by person by person, trying to convince people to change their diets. That's critically important, um, and we should be doing that work. Uh, but we're going to have a much easier time of it if we actually have something that competes on taste and cost, um, which are the things that people take into account when they're making food choices, not exclusively those things, but those things are important. Um, we're going to do that with plant-based and cultivated meat. Um, I'm going to skip this slide, um, other than to say that this, uh, there's a photo of this. Um, so it's not that long ago that we went from uh, horse and buggy uh, to the kinds of cars that we have today. We can do the same thing with meat. We can innovate meat um, so that in the future, we look back on the idea of this 12,000-year-old technology that we raise crops to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals when we could just turn those crops into meat. Um, or grow those cells directly without all of the inefficiencies, that is going eventually, we hope, think, to be seem insane. Um, on the EA analysis, um, it is a massive problem. I think we all understand the problem that is climate change, the problem that is cruelty to animals, the problem that is antibiotic resistance, the problem that is pandemic risk. Um, we believe that is extraordinarily tractable. Um, it's, an untested, it's not a fully tested hypothesis, but we are super optimistic. Um, about the prospects of making meat from plants and cultivating meat from cells. Uh, the more our scientists dive into this, the more, uh, the more optimistic that they become about it. Um, it is overwhelmingly neglected. Um, very few people, even in the climate community, the IPCC, the uh, UN Secretary General a couple weeks ago, he said, we're sleepwalking toward climate Armageddon. Uh, food mag didn't come up. Um, about four months ago, they released a report where food and ag did come up, um, but it was really the same old, same old. It was the things that are going to cost more, that are going to require massive programs, that are trying to convince people to change their diets. Um, this is the one solution to the problem that uses markets, that analogizes to renewable energy and electric vehicles, um, and it is vastly under-resourced and under-talked about in the climate and global health uh, communities. Uh, these are some GFI openings, if you're interested uh, in coming to work with us. Uh, we do tomorrow at 1 o'clock, um, Zach Weston uh, from GFI will be talking about um, alternative protein careers. I think I'm flipping this. 2 o'clock is alternative protein careers. 1 o'clock uh, is a GFI uh, office hours, so if you want to chat with me, uh, Caitlin, Molly, and Zach, who's the invisible ghost to the right of Caitlin, uh, we'll have open office hours tomorrow at 1 to talk about GFI, and at 2 o'clock, uh, Zach will be presenting about alternative protein careers. Hope folks will come. Um, we have a bunch of newsletters. Uh, GFI is all about transparency, so we send out our monthly reports, which you can sign up for at gfi.org newsletters. We have three other newsletters um, on Twitter. That is GFI, and that is me. Um, and I would be delighted to hear what other people are thinking about. So uh, I think we have about 10 minutes. You want to line up at either of the microphones. We'll just sort of ping back and forth. Um, so if you have a comment or a question, uh, no holds barred uh, whatsoever you would like to talk about, I am delighted to talk about. Thank you.
or I can tell more jokes. Hi, thank you for the presentation. My quick question is, um, I was just reading about recent earning calls for companies like Beyond and they cited, cited um, softer demand in the US market as well as uh, competitors kind of gaining market share as uh, a poor result for the quarter or for the last year. So stemming from that, do you think that we should actually support monopolization to support few companies to reach scale faster or is competition a good thing here? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think our answer to this question is just not gonna be that tractable. Um, so my, my hunch is that wherever I came down on monopolization or not monopolization, the degree to which I could actually even affect that or even GFI could affect that um, would be pretty small. So it feels to me like largely an intellectual exercise. Are monopolies good? Are monopolies not good? Um, GFI is going to continue to try to build the entire sector um, so just as a reminder, our hypothesis is that the products need to taste the same or better and they need to cost the same or less. Um, there is so far not a plant-based product that comes anywhere near cost the same or less. Um, so then our question is, while the products cost a lot more um, and almost all of them don't satisfy meat eaters from a taste vantage, how big is the early adopter market? So how big can the industry get? Um, my hunch is that competition is gonna be good in this regard. Um, as with many things, if you put all of your um, just eggs in one basket, uh, that, can, <laughs> that can come back to haunt you. So I'm guessing that lots and lots of competition is going to be important, uh, but really getting to cost the, same or cost the same or less and taste the same or better is gonna, I mean, Beyond Meat says it'll be two and a half years before they have one product that is cost competitive with beef. Um, which means it's even further out that they're gonna be cost competitive with chicken or fish, which are even less expensive. Um, Ethan, um, on the quarterly calls, says that he thinks they're like 85% of the way there on taste. So from his perspective, they're not there on taste or cost yet. The thesis really gets tested once we have products that, that taste the same or better and cost the same or less. Um, and my guess would be, um, with very low confidence, uh, my, guess my guess would be that more competition is gonna be better than less. Um, although obviously if you have less competition and they're just like really particularly awesome at keeping their eyes on the prize, they might get there fastest. So kind of following up on that, when you mentioned that we're not trying to change people's minds, but actually develop the technology to get um, cost the same or cheaper, taste the same or better. Um, so everybody's operating under the belief and assumption that the market will follow and we will not need to change people's minds if we achieve that. Um, there are people, I mean, I, I would encourage people to come to Jacob Peacock's uh, presentation at four o'clock today, where I think he will be challenging that as a thesis. Um, and, and from our perspective, it would be a both and. Um, so what we, I think, can be pretty sure is true is if the products cost more or taste not as good, they will not dominate in the marketplace. So it seems to me what might be true is that this is necessary but not sufficient, right. um, which goes back to how neglected this is. We need everybody to go all in uh, with, uh, with promoting the products. It, it may not be GFI's role, uh, but it's probably, you know, I don't think, I haven't heard that there's another solution to industrial meat production going up 70 to 100% by 2050. That can scale other than this. So we need to figure out, our, our, our uh, hypothesis would be we need to figure out how to make this work. 
Um, and if there are ways, if it's not all about taste and price, then we need to go all in with, with convincing consumers also. Right. Um, although I do think people, I mean, you know, are, it, it seems to me reasonable that people eat meat despite how it's produced, not because of how it's produced. Um, so I'm guessing it won't be that hard once we have products that taste the same or better and cost the same or less. It's not going to be that hard of a marketing play, um, but it, it may not be an if you build it, they will come. Um, scenario remains to okay. be seen. But we have a, a limited amount of time and the lines are kind of long. So um, if you keep your comment or question short, I will also try to keep my answer short. Absolutely. Um, my name is Yash and you actually just answered my question. So I will move along. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Hi. Also, this oh. is also the AI session and I've got a little input. <laughs> okay, so my name is Kian and I wanted to ask a question. So. You referenced the idea of like the dedicated meat lover who um, there's something about animals specific that they that they um, that they want to eat actual animal flesh, and I was wondering if you uh, you sort of reference the solution to that being lab grown meat, so actual like flesh. But do you have like data or evidence to say that they wouldn't just not want to eat that either? The numbers on cultivated meat are shockingly high. Uh, for people's enthusiasm for it. So there have been a fair number of consumer surveys, and I would have predicted that, I mean, we're gonna, and, and even when you call it lab-grown meat or in vitro meat, the numbers are like 30 to 70% of people are enthusiastic about eating it. For a product that is like completely new and foreign, and there is enthusiasm for it, um, which uh, I think once the products exist and you say, you know, hey, look at this Nicholas Kristof article, do you realize that in conventional meat you're literally getting Benadryl um, and Prozac in your meat um, and antibiotic residues and you know everything that I talked about about the harms of industrial animal agriculture and instead you can get pure meat. It's a ways, like you know, the scientific question is still open. Is it possible for cultivated meat that we can get to a place at which it costs less? We're optimistic, it's certainly not certain, uh, but I think once we get to cost less, it is not gonna be hard, um, is my hypothesis to convince people to shift. Um, I will say, uh, as sort of, a, I gave a presentation. I gave a presentation at something called. Uh, there's a group that's the the follow-on to the Young Presidents Organization. It's a bunch of CEOs, and it's mostly private equity CEOs. And I was talking about this, and I asked people, you know, it's all mostly male, mostly white, mostly dudes in their 60s. And I asked them um, who would eat cultivated meat, and 100% of them raised their hand, which I was uh, pretty surprised by. It was one of those things where don't ask the question if you don't know the answer, and I didn't know the answer, but I just was fascinated. Um, and they were all super into it. And I would have thought they would have been about our hardest audience. So um, remains to be seen, but I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty bullish. Amazing, all right, thank you. Uh, hi, my name's Kelly, and I was just curious what you think about the role of organizations that um, sort of focus on more directly attacking uh, animal products. So, you know, uh, I think you could say that it works with what GFI is doing by maybe helping the meat industry internalize, well, helping is probably the wrong word, uh, but forcing the meat industry to sort of internalize some of these horrible costs, uh, but it also might work against the sort of model of partnering with the meat industry and moving towards this. So I was curious, you know, whether what you think about that work? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm generally in favor of and supportive of, of everybody that is trying to make the world a better place. Um, and um, we have not found, you know, we have good relationships with Tyson and JBS and Car you know, all those companies. Um, we haven't found that any of them are like resistant to working with us because of things that they're encountering from others. Um, 
I mean, we are, we are optimistic about the idea of these companies incorporating alternative proteins explicitly into their sustainability goals and their sustainability plans. Um, my hunch is that, you know, I mean, the thing we say to them is, you know, you, you, you will have a lot of headaches around these external costs, and those would be examples of headaches. Um, so why not brag about moving into alternative proteins and set goals around it? Uh, the other thing that's sort of a, a mantra for us is, is don't be Kodak, be Canon, um, which really does resonate with a lot of the folks who are the you know, CEOs and upper echelons of management of these companies. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, I have a question about um, the tractability of the type of work that GFI is doing. So when looking at the pie of the EA criteria, you, you mentioned that the tractability is sort of the most uncertain of those. And I currently work in global development, um, and it's a field that's really concerned with high quality evidence and RCTs, and et cetera. So I was wondering if there's, what you think about if it's possible to do that type of rigorous research on um, alt-protein interventions, and if any of it's being done already. There's a lot of analysis um, of alternative proteins. I'm not sure that, I don't know what, what a, and, um, yeah, I don't know exactly what that would look like sort of this early in the trajectory. Like, I, I, I feel like, um, you know, you look at something like solar and the price of solar has plummeted, the price of wind has plummeted, um, EVs are beginning to take off, but like even EVs are at like 1.5% right now. Um, overall mileage driving cars powered by combustion engines goes up and up and up and up. Um, I don't think that means that EVs are a waste of time. Similarly, um, you know, China in three years went from no offshore wind to more than the rest of the world combined, uh, but they're simultaneously using more and more and more fossil fuels. Um, I don't think that means wind energy uh, is, a, is a waste of time, um, but what it looks like to do rigorous controls for, a pro you know, for products that don't exist, that are you know, products that taste the same or better and cost the same or less are kind of hypothetical. Um, feels tough to me. Um, we have a tremendous amount of anecdotal evidence of movement in the right direction. If you look at our monthly reports, like they're six pages of, you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but I feel like six pages of awesome um, every single month. And we're having, there's a lot that we're not putting into the monthly reports that is pretty spectacular in terms of the advancements that we're making with governments and industry. Um, so, um, but I, I would love, to, I mean, I, we would be delighted to participate um, if, uh, if folks can come up with ways to rigorously test the hypothesis now. Uh, but I'm, I'm not aware um, of things. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Han, and I was wondering what are some main drivers for the mainstream consumers to adopt this type of alternative meat um, besides the taste and pricing point? Because what if they just look to the animal-based meat uh, taste as the benchmark? And what are some white spaces in terms of matching the taste? Yeah, so that your, your first question um, is such a fascinating one for us at GFI, um, because we, we have people who come to us pretty regularly um, and want us to be basically marketing the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, um, or they want us to be marketing you know, lots of the other plant-based meat products. Um, and our hypothesis is that there may be things that allows the market to grow in the short term um, while the people buying the products are early adopters that are actually counter to the products succeeding 
over the longer term. Um, so like a lot of people in the sort of hyper-foodie community are super concerned about things that 98% of consumers aren't concerned about at all. Um, and in conversations with folks, you know, we all live in our bubbles. So you'll talk with people who are like, everybody cares about X. And you're like, have you seen the line at KFC? Like, those people don't care about X. Something like 40% of people eat fast food on a daily basis. Um, and so we struggle a lot with, like, what is the advice to the people with the goal of answering your first question? How do we get consumers now to buy these products? Um, and will companies be shooting themselves in the foot if they make decisions now for the early adopters who are happy to sacrifice on taste and pay more? Um, yeah, so anyway, that's one of the questions we struggle with. Um, and I think our corporate, I mean, our corporate engagement engages with this question a lot because of our work uh, with companies at every stage um, of company development. Um, it does seem like taste is gonna be the number one thing. Taste is the number one thing. If you read the, the stories about Beyond struggling, like I think to, a, um, to an article, they talk about supply chain issues, they talk about price, they talk about taste. Um, and so the products really do need to taste good um, or they're not gonna sell. Uh, and the price needs to come down or they're gonna sell a lot less. The question is, I think, like how, you know, where is the ceiling on the early adopters? Um, my hypothesis would be that it's probably four to five times where it is now, but, you know, we don't know. It's not inconceivable that we've reached the ceiling already. Um, and that uh, the only way we, you know, we um, increase sales is price and taste increases. Um, I, will, I will just point out, though, I mean, we had a 45% growth in plant-based meat um, last year. So the fact that it was flat this year, it's still a you know, 15, 20% per year over two years. So, you know, the pandemic has just really confused things, I think. Um, I'm not sure I ever got around to answering your question, did I? No, it was good, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, we need to wrap it up. We'll do two more questions, um, and then please come to office hours tomorrow at one, um, and Zach's alternative protein careers tomorrow at two. So two more questions. Um, I'm sorry, but I'm happy to happy to hang out and chat with people. I think I'm not sure what's after this. Uh, yeah. Hello. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of your talk that the meat industry uses a lot of resources, whether it's land for grazing and growing food or uh, emissions. And you also mentioned that the meat industry is very inefficient with its use of resources, whether it's uh, you know chickens not being good calorie farms or calorie factories. Uh, I think one of the counter arguments that I hear most uh, most often is that the meat industry utilizes resources that wouldn't be used otherwise. Like chickens can eat food that humans wouldn't uh, and that they could use land and utilize land that wouldn't be useful for growing crops or human-like habitability. Uh, how would you respond to someone who holds these beliefs? Um, that happens somewhat in developing economies. Uh, that doesn't happen almost at all in the U.S. Less than 1% of beef sales are exclusively grass-fed beef and 0% of chicken and pork sales um, are animals that graze. So um, it's an almost non-existent, it's almost non, I mean, it, it fails in other ways as well. Um, but the, the biggest thing is, you know, try to, try to find, I mean, grass-fed beef, I think it's four times more expensive, which is why it's less than 1% of sales um, and 100% of chicken. Um, even, even like uh, Polyface Farms, which is the Joel Salatin's farm in Virginia that's glorified in omnivore's dilemma, uh, the pigs and chickens are still eating massive amounts of feed that not exclusively feed, but it's still a, a horrible uh, caloric conversion ratio. So 
Um, there are going to be some pastoralists uh, where that's going to be true, um, although there's still going to be um, significant adverse environmental consequences from that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Last question. Oh, how is the... In all the areas of the world where meat production is industrialized, do you expect for it to also be economically feasible for them to convert to um, non-livestock meat production with, and thereby abandoning all their like existing investment in infrastructure without some sort of external uh, subsidy or investment? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think hypothetically, sure, um, it obviously takes a lot longer. I mean, the, you know, the, the, nature of, the nature of capitalism is you have your uh, fixed costs and you um, discount them over however many decades the slaughterhouse exists for. Um, so yes, I think the transition, we could leave it to the tender mercies of the market and the uh, market would probably eventually get there. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but the reason our global battle cry is that government should be supporting this transition um, is we would like to see the sorts of government support uh, that exists for electric vehicles and renewable energy, uh, wind, solar, um, we think also nuclear, um, or I think, I guess that's, that's not actually a GFI position. Take that back. Uh, but um, the sorts of government support uh, that exists will, happen, will help it to happen a lot quicker and could be dispositively responsible for it happening at all. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Elon Musk says Tesla would have failed at least twice, if not for government support programs. Um, I'm optimistic that this is, that the transition to making meat from plants and cultivating meat from cells is easier. Uh, you know, you don't need the cobalt, cobalt and the copper and all of the sort of inputs into lithium ion batteries. I don't think the scientific challenges are probably as steep um, as the challenges for electric vehicles. Don't know for sure. Um, so I think it could happen. Uh, purely market-based, but the reason we're trying to get governments to help um, is for, you know, to answer your question and, and make it uh, be plausible um, a lot more quickly uh, and everywhere. All right. Thanks very much, everybody.